Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. You might notice that I am not a Northern Irish man. This week, I, Joe, am hosting the podcast because this week we are doing a women's special. March um, is the month that holds International Women's Day. As part of the Evangelical Alliance, as part of the advocacy team, we've been doing a editorial series on violence and abuse against women and girls. And we thought we should mark that in this podcast, Cross Section, with a women's special. So this week, I, Joe Evans, will be hosting the podcast. I'm joined by Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Hello, Joe. Lovely and, to see you. And yourself. And I'm joined by Peter Linus, as per usual. We've kept him in the room. Thanks for letting me in. <laughs> Alicia, it's nice to have you with us. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself for those who are faithful listeners to the podcast and are wondering who this is that's coming to the into our podcast bubble? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Alicia Edmund. I'm the head of public policy for the Evangelical Alliance. So work very closely with Joe, Peter, and in previous episodes, you would have met Damalola and Danny. Uh, but outside the Evangelical Alliance, I'm very much a woman who is passionate about fashion, the creative arts, sports, uh, and I'm heavily involved in uh, church ministry. So hoping to bring all those different experiences to our conversation today. I've got to say, I am excited about today's episode. We've got a lot of juicy topics to cover. I feel like there is an elephant in the room that needs to be commented on though. I might sound slightly huskier than normal. And that is because as per pretty much two thirds of everyone I know, I have finally been caught by Rona, coronavirus, finally got it. Alicia, you're in the same boat, is that right? I am. Came back from my week off on leave and too much excitement led me to uh, the pandemic COVID door. So the first time in two years to catch the coronavirus, yeah. How are you holding up? I'm staying strong. I haven't got it yet. <laughs> I'm just generally tired. It's St. Paddy's Day when we're recording this. So, you know, I'm just behaving myself, getting ready to celebrate. Have you had COVID yet, Peter? No, I have stayed away on the outer reaches of Ireland to avoid it. I know, I know that's my feeling. That was me until this week. And yet here I am, just just human. Peter, I'm cooking in a, uh, well, I'm I'm not cooking. I'm having an Irish stew cooked for me this evening. So St. Patrick's Day all the way. But right, let's get down to business on this women's special. Alicia, I'm gonna hit you with the hard stuff. Do you think it's possible to be a Christian and a feminist? I mean, it depends what version of feminism that we are talking about. Many uh, successful women with higher platforms, higher earnings across academia media uh, for whom are being cancelled in current culture. I think the word feminism for me personally, I find it jarring, uh, not because I'm against the uh, kind of the promotion, the protection of women and girls, but actually, it's a word that can sometimes get lost in academia. It's a conversation that can be somewhat academic rather than our proximity to people from different walks of life, women who have experienced different traumas, different challenges, different obstacles based on their gender, but also the intersection of, of race. Uh, and so I think it's definitely possible for a Christian to care about the injustices that um, women and girls face, 
be that in the workplace, be that in home, be that even within our church community, uh, 100% behind that. And the gospel is very much the reconciliation of all people to Jesus uh, and the good news of who he is. So I definitely believe Christians should have a voice and speak up for the injustices of that. But I can see why some like myself a little bit hesitant to call themselves a feminist. Hmm. P, so what do you think? Yes, but both words you'd be actually probably people are saying, what do you mean by a Christian? What do you mean? Sometimes even that phrase is interesting in our culture. Um, got a lot of nominalism, a lot of people who just say they're Christians who are like, yeah, I absolutely passionately love Jesus. And I think it's possible to do that. And my wife has described herself as a feminist theologian. Uh, I was talking with somebody yesterday, we were talking about that term. Uh, I think the person said, maybe I'm a womanist, not a feminist. I need to go and explore even what all that means. But as a father of two daughters and somebody who's married to somebody who's very passionate about feminist theology and what that looks like, I'm absolutely committed to the equality of how we engage in these issues, which I think is part of the reason for being on today. We could have an all-woman takeover, but actually part of this is to make sure we have, I think, a perspective of voices engaging on these topics. These stories apply to us all. And I'm really passionate as my daughters grow up into this world like, as to what that looks like for them and how that world is shaping their views and what I do as a dad in particular and a husband, as well as a friend to others in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like for myself, my way, how I feel about equality, about feminism, labels are full of weight and I get that and everyone's going to have slightly different feelings about those. But, But how I feel about feminism is so shaped by my faith in a God who created men and women out of the same stuff created men and women equal he's got such a good and beautiful design that we so often don't see reflected in the world and that yeah that gets me fired up and wanting to talk about god's good design so that's exactly what we're going to be doing today and we're going to start off by just we want to take a moment to uh note some women who have been in the news this week for one reason or another um we had marina of sinikova who was an uh, editor on the Russian state television pro- uh, channel, News One. Is that what it's called? News One? Channel One. Channel One. Who disrupted a live broadcast, holding a sign saying that there shouldn't be a war, that the media w- was lying to the Russian people. I assume you've both seen this clip. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. I, that um, Peter. She was brave. I mean, as I watched, I just thought, Uh, I mean, the sanctions don't seem to have been so severe, but I was just like, oh my goodness, I wish I had your courage. Mm. So we can only assume that she's um, in in prison right now. But but I I have a question. So when you watch the clip, the thing that's one of the things that really struck me was the news presenter didn't react at all. You don't see her flinch or like look around at who's behind her shouting away. Did either of you notice that? What do you think about that? What do you think's going on there? I saw people comment that maybe it was like, did that, was it fake? That it, was it real? But I mean, there, there has been a, she was legally represented. The news is covered to say at the, at the minute she has been fined, as I understand, and released. So she's not actually in prison. I mean, there was a quick case. So all appears legit, but it was surreal. The lady just did not flinch. And I could see why people were like, almost, is this, is this legit? Yeah. So, so similarly, I mean, poss- yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say similarly, uh, a broadcasting stage fright, quite possibly in that, you know, the unexpected, if you've planned a broadcast in a certain way, you know, what's going to come in the editorial reels, 
just could be a moment of a, a kind of a freeze moment rather than a, a controlled response to what was going on behind her. Yeah, very true. So we go from the incredible bravery of one woman to the incredible perseverance of another as finally we see Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe released home. She, we've seen the photos of her reunited with her family. Quite emotional, you could hear a BBC broadcaster getting professional, stiff BBC broadcaster getting choked up as she was announcing the news that Nazanin was coming home. Peter, family man, how did that make you feel? Oh, totally. My wife and I were talking about it, and at that point, it was just before she was released. And you're like, we don't. Nobody wants to celebrate until we know she's on that flight. She's actually clear because you were like, this, this is. We've got close before. Can this really happen? It's six years, I think. Now it is, mm-hmm. and for her, for her daughter, seven, I think it is. So I mean, I think she. There's a quote of her saying, "Is is that mummy just like absolutely confirming with her dad? Like you know, is that mummy? I mean, that is just kind of both tragic and so emotional in one go, and to see them embrace." And she just said she was tucked up in between them in the first night that they had uh, finally all together again. Just amazing. For sure. The story or oh, the visual of her and her daughter embracing brought a tear to my eye because um, essentially a story of reunion, of long suffering. A moment of the last time she saw her daughter in person was as a baby and six years has elapsed and so much time of not seeing her daughter in a way that you would in upbringing your child. It, it definitely was an emotive uh, moment uh, and a story that their life now begins basically as a family. Their life now begins now that they're re- reunited. There's so much politics and comment on what the UK government's been doing in this that we could go into, but I'm going to resist because we've got, like I said, a lot of a lot of juicy things we want to talk about today. So, I'm going to talk about one other remarkable woman that's been in the news this week, who is Rachel Den Hollander, who is an American gymnast and Christian. And she's been doing various events across London this last week. Alicia, I believe you went to one of them. Can you just tell us a bit about who she is, what the event was, what happened? Yeah, of course. So the recording was at All uh, Souls in London. She was there speaking a story about is there justice for survivors of abuse? Rachel Den Hollander um, is known as uh, a kind of an advocate for change within the US gymnastics community as she herself had experienced abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser uh, and the whole court case came to a head in 2017 and so the evening was a conversation of her journey, her journey as a child, as a woman of faith, of someone that came into sport, of how the abuse took place, but more importantly, kind of the the environment and systems that abuse flourish in. And so it was just a very um, kind of insightful moment. I was very proud to be there. I've had many conversations from trauma survivors and survivors of abuse in different capacities, whether that's in the criminal justice system, but it was a very poignant moment that it was a conversation taking place in a church building Mm. uh, where faith could be spoken about, where faith um, was definitely the anchor of how it kind of led her to confront uh, and to speak out uh, and motivate her, but also the challenges with that, that soon as she came out and spoke she was also ostracized from some of her kind of church community uh, and friends for doing so so it was definitely an emotive conversation and one that I'd recommend others would listen as the recording is still available. 
Yeah, that's a great point. The recording's available online, it's free. And it's worth saying, I mean, people have probably heard of this story, but Rachel, she, although she is a Christian, and, and like you said, she's been invited into these churches, Christian spaces, to speak as a Christian woman. She is fully respected across the media, which is cool to see a Christian in that position, her voice being listened to. And she speaks with such grace and yeah you can to me you can really feel the firm foundation of someone who is absolutely certain who she is in Jesus you feel that confidence in her voice as she speaks and say what what stood out to you from the evening I think the journey that she went on to share the story so the abuse took place uh when she was 17 and it wasn't till 16 years further on for which she kind of makes that formal complaint uh, and begins the process. So I think just her honesty and openness of processing the pain, both within her family as a child, but also she's a woman um, perfectly placed in that she has a background and an education as a lawyer. And that really came through in the conversation that she wasn't just someone that had been a victim of abuse, but that she also knew how to advocate and saw that role in kind of being a face to to, to the situation and, and speaking out and kind of taking on uh, quite strong institutions in terms of the uh, the United States uh, Gymnastic Association and, and all that was tied up into that. So that was one of the huge, huge takeaways that I took from that is, and that how faith was her anchor throughout uh, and how she continued to, to persevere uh, despite her own challenge and suffering. Yeah, I think that's what I find really helpful about her. She's written about it. She's done some events like with Diane Lamberg, who has written Redeeming Power. So they're not just, uh, they're telling us about what's going on. We have to do the listening, but also trying to inform how you respond. And Rachel's been a really clear advocate on some of the big stories around uh, the Ravi Zacharias, more recently John MacArthur and asking what's going to happen there. And Christianity Today, a big US magazine that brought us the kind of rise and fall of Mars Hill and, and exposed a number of other stories, has now had to acknowledge that actually internally they had a significant problem under Mark Galley, their previous editor, and that's been exposed. And again, Rachel has been saying that's absolutely necessary. We've got to talk about this got to talk about happening in all sorts of spaces we've got to see the repeated patterns and what are we going to do to address this Uh, so I'm really thankful for advocacy and how she is able to lean us into what we're going to do about it in some of the organizations that we're involved in which I think is an incredibly important part of her ministry as well I am listening to her talk it was brilliant she was very well articulated she spoke very clearly of how she managed to keep faith in God through everything that she experienced. She talked about the C.S. Lewis quote of she knew she knew the line was crooked because because she'd known the straight line. I'm totally butchering that quote. But the idea being that she knew something was very wrong because through God she knows what is very right. But a, a line she said that really stuck with me is forgiveness is not opposed to justice. And like we said at the start, we're talking about this whole topic about women generally like I said we're doing this editorial series on violence and abuse against women because this is a topic that the church Christians have so much to say about because we have this wonderful God who has this wonderful design who loves and created his people for flourishing and yet we know like things you just said Peter we know that the church has so often got things wrong 
And I just think the clarity of that line of forgiveness is not opposed to justice is something is something that as the church we need to be so clear on. I say the church, Christians generally, we need to be so clear on that you can that something can be forgiven and that doesn't mean there's no consequence. Forgive is not forget. Mm. And she just she just painted such a, a clear, beautiful picture that because we trust in a God of justice any wrongdoing that is done and we can be very clear on things that are wrong and evil it will be paid for whether that's justice in God himself on that final day or whether it's done through the sacrifice of Jesus either way wrong is paid for and I just I just thought that was just again full of grace but but so clear with the voice of justice that Christianity can and should bring Alicia, I feel like I feel like you want to come in on that. No, a hundred percent. When she said that, I totally resonated with that point. And it, when abuse takes place, and and maybe we'll get onto this point in terms of confronting and bringing accountability to our own communities, particularly within the Christian community, we quickly move to forgiveness. We we need to forgive. We need that person needs to go into immediate reconciliation and. She rightly spoke and shared uh, in her kind of testimony statement that she also asked for the full weight of the law for what had happened because the scale of the abuse was so significant and it was only through faith that she she could forgive. And I, I think there's something so important about our theology and how we work that out in really difficult and complex situations of suffering and trauma and abuse that we are prepared as Christians to journey with people through their trauma and not instantly suggest that the next step for them is to forgive and forget but it's a process of pain it's about opening it's about transferring shame uh, and knowing their full worth in Christ it's about uh, those individuals going on a journey of building trust trust with individuals and often institutions that have abuse those positions of power and so I think as Christians we have to be very slow to ask people to forgive and forget uh, and be more willing to to take that kind of suffering road and journey with people in their stories and connecting them with the kind of therapeutic support that they need. Sorry I'm diving in again because I literally don't think we can say it's enough that that so often things go wrong when Christians believe that that we can't call out wrong when we think we have to go straight to grace or, or that grace means there can't be justice. Like, I'm just thinking there could, who knows who listens to this podcast, there could be women who have suffered abuse and that, that you're not allowed to call it out, you're not allowed to tell someone that you've been wronged because we're meant to be people marked by grace, but we're also people marked by justice. And just those two things can and should work so beautifully together. I'm sorry, Peter, I'm going to shut up. You go. No, no, um, listen, this is the takeover, but what struck me this week was Diane Lamberg uh, tweeted just this week, uh, and she's the lady who's written this redeeming power and really looked at the structures behind this. When children are abused, they repeatedly see in the flesh a series of lies about God. Undoing the damage spiritually, emotionally and relationally will take a long time and much hard work. That's one of the reasons she goes on to say God says that those who so harm children would be better off dead. And I, I mean... I, I don't I think I agree with that. I don't fully know I need to process it but I was so struck by it and I really like what she's saying and respect her and I was like wow you are you're just naming that and calling that out uh, in a way that I need to take really seriously and it's like 
there's a, there's just a starkness to that. And at the same time, Rachel was pushing back and saying, the, for those who aren't familiar maybe with the John MacArthur case, we need to check the facts and see, but the facts appear to be, he's saying, you need to stay in a relationship even where there was uh, abusive nature to it because the marriage was more important in that moment. And, and that's the pushback. And she said, no way. And I'm going to say, no way. That, that, there's no, I don't see anywhere you could make that kind of argument. And that's where the problem comes. We've got the abuse and then you've got a layer going on top that says, actually, no, you have to just accept that. That's the kind of sacrifice you make. No, no, there is a complex relationship and how we subvert power and what Jesus does. But the, the abuse of power at the root of a lot of this is the real problem and then the consequences. And so it's for those of us who carry power and like, it would be naive of me not to say I'm sitting in a conversation in which I am an educated white male. I have, in every room I went into, I didn't have a challenge. I grew up in a household of boys. Like, this is the thing that's challenging me with daughters. And I'm, I'm re-understanding what this looks like. Because in most places I went to, the world went my way. I, like, I'd be naive to say anything but that. Now I've got to understand how it feels for them going into rooms where people say, Oh, your daughter's bringing, this is an example. My daughter bringing a cucumber into school and she eats a cucumber. She was seven years old at the time. Another mother said, oh, I think you might want to cut that up and do it differently because the boys think it's da da da. And I'm like, the problem's with the boys, not with my daughter and bringing a cucumber into school. The, they need to sort themselves out. This is ridiculous. So I, as a dad and male, want to say, hold on, that's not acceptable. You need to teach your sons what to do. I don't need to retrain my daughter, though I do because she lives in this world. So you've got to do that dance. Sorry, I'm going to get passionate. I'll, I'll be quiet. No, this is what this is what we're here for this week. This is time for a bit of passion. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, we all have stories, don't we, of 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 where you see where the world is is twisted and broken, and that's why I'm going to keep saying it throughout the podcast. That's why Christians need to be speaking into this space because we have more reason than anyone to be calling out the crooked because we know the straight we know the good god and his good design and that that informs us that informs us of of what we should be striving for in society in our communities so so it's been we're recording this episode 10 days after international women's day um i feel like i need to point out pies get a whole week women just get a day but anyway and two years uh, two weeks after the anniversary of Sarah Everard's disappearance. So I wanted to, us to talk about, has the UK changed in the last year? It felt like when Sarah Everard went missing, it was another start of a whole new conversation about the safety of women. There was this whole thing going around of she was just walking home um, a weirdly a thing that got me quite emotional supermarkets started um posting on their social media that um, they were a safe space if you didn't feel safe you could go and shelter there so do we feel safer a year on peter do you feel like your daughters are in a different world a year on alicia how do you feel walking particularly around london a year on from that incident i'm happy to jump and say no <laughs> It might seem the strangest thing, but it was an interview with Jermaine Greer around actually Bruce Stroke, Caitlyn Jenner, that got me. She said, uh, this is a Jenner who's transitioned, said, as an Olympic decathlete transitioned to be a woman, that person has never understood what it's like to walk at a bus stop, bus stop late at night. And I, I, I caught me because I was like, oh, I've never worried about walking to a bus stop late at night. And then my wife came back in from a run 
not very long ago and there was a young lady in Ireland killed out running middle of the day and she said for the first time I don't feel safe running in this area in daylight I was like oh I don't have that thought and you do and that's different and I mean yes that's really obvious but I just want to articulate that 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 was the moment that caught me and it hasn't moved and we're seeing that in stories this week we might finish discussing child Q and that's come up in the news but I was just like oh my goodness if that happened to my daughter and what went on there in a school context I am I'm just outraged at that and what outrages me most is that that would appear to be legal and this is a 15 year old child subjected to a strip search an intimate strip search in a school environment and nobody thought to blow the whistle at any stage in the process and actually basically most steps of it were probably legal that could happen to my daughter and I would be absolutely just literally moving to arms out of somebody need to restrain me I can't believe that I think the question around safety um do I feel safer on the streets, walking the streets? Yes, purely because I think my patterns of behaviour has changed. Uh, one, because of the pandemic, uh, and two, social act- interactions have, have shifted. But do I feel safe as a woman? Uh, am I more mindful of my vulnerabilities, uh, both online, uh, both in social settings of a restaurant or walking to... I am more mindful of those things. So... Mm-hmm. In terms of what has changed in a year, I don't think I ever expected um, the world to change. I mean, there's been definitely government impetus uh, and enthusiasm to keep the profile and the issue of violence against uh, women and girls and abuse at the centre stage. It's a policy priority that has got funding and investment from everything from relationship and support for children and young people because there's a rise in that space of young girls experiencing abuse by peers uh, and sexual assault. They're talking about support for victims that have gone through either sexual assault or domestic abuse. There's a lot of funding so there's a lot of impetus and goodwill uh, to change but the reality is that that we're still having situations within communities, within um, news stories for which abuse and violence is still prevalent. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I I think I agree that on sort of, do I feel like there's less dangers? No, I don't feel any safer in that regard. And in fact, I think everything that the, the pu- very highly publicised attacks, murders of women in the last year have made me more afraid in that respect I think the thing that has changed that affects how I feel is that it the conversation it is the profile I think has been raised I don't Mm -hmm. people may have seen the home office have recently released that's a parcel arriving I'll just carry on the home office have recently released uh videos encouraging us to call out the the tagline is kind of enough is enough so calling men to call out their friends when they start passing remarks at a woman or verbaling attack verbally attacking a woman the idea being that it starts with words let's call it out there not let it progress so I think it being more in conversation means that if I was in a situation where I felt vulnerable say my phone died and I'm walking home from my local station I think I would be more likely to say to uh, another woman who might be walking or a couple I these are examples that I've thought about as I've been walking I might be more inclined to say hey I'm walking on my own can I just walk in front of you guys or can I walk with you or I might be more inclined to ask a shop for a phone charger or to 
to, to ask, ask a random friend from church, hey, would you mind dropping me home? Because actually it's gone dark and I don't really fancy the walk home. I feel like all those kind of conversations would somehow feel less weird than perhaps they would have done a year ago because it is more in everyone's mindset. Women aren't safe. So if a woman asks you for help, that's got to be treated as normal because that's how we protect each other. Peter, you started talking about child cue. Alicia, would you, would you be happy just for anyone who's somehow missed the story? Could you just give us a little overview of, of what, what that's about? Sure. It's definitely an emotive story. It's a story that I've read and somewhat processed my anger. So I just say that as a disclaimer uh, to touch on this. So uh, Child Q, there was a report that was released released by Hackney's local child safeguarding uh, practice review, whereby the story of a 15-year-old black schoolgirl was accused by the school of carrying cannabis on her in person Uh, and so the school's response and engagement to that was to call the police uh, onto the premises and that child was taken away uh, into a separate room where she was strip searched by two um, police officers uh, and had the kind of safeguarding lead of the uh, school there but what was so harrowing and challenging about this story is that not only was the child strip searched and was not carrying or in possession of any of or drugs on her in person is that she was also uh, on her period she was also menstruating and just the traumatic situation where the police asked even the child to remove her sanitary towel to double check that there wasn't cannabis hidden it was just uh, the story is just completely harrowing uh, it's a report that's definitely caught the news headlines uh, and it lends back to this conversation that Rachel Den Hollander was talking about is once a situation or an incident of abuse is within your own community so in this situation this is a story that converges in the school grounds it brings into question the practice of the police how are we prepared to speak up and to defend the individual that's been abused and in this situation it's a young young girl um, whose life forever will be changed by this moment and so yeah that's a st- story of child cute uh, and the report that's come out recently and it's definitely you know just listening to that my brain challenge is challenged by in whilst processes and practice might allow for a strip search why the adults in the room didn't think it was inappropriate to mm. eat that 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 kind of thinking that kind of misuse of power and position and not seeing the vulnerability of the child or the individual or the impact that that would have given that they did a search of her person and her bag and found nothing so yeah and the challenge behind a lot of this goes to power for me these questions of we each have power and um, power is not always negative we need to redeem the gift of power and the crouch has written about that but there were various people who had power in each of these uh, parts of the child queue conversation and they failed to steward it on behalf of the vulnerable. That's what we're supposed to do. Even in our secular cultural context, it's always in the best interest of the child. It gets that. So every one of those trips was missed. And so we need to do better at that. One of the things I'm a safeguarding trustee in environments, I'm saying, guys, this is a justice issue. This isn't a technical processing issue. It's not about a tick box exercise best I understand this, this is absolutely at the core of every single human being made in the image of God and any act of abuse against another human being is an act of high treason against God. That's why I understand what's going on in these moments. So when we do safeguarding, we don't do it to take a box, we do it because this is critically important 
this is fundamental to the justice understanding. And the easiest place, so I, I, I find the, the child Q story really hard. I read the case notes this morning again. Um, but I also want to look back on the church, which is the area that I know, because as we've said, we need to call it out in our own bag. It's easy to say, hey, the Met Police dropped the ball and some school over there dropped the ball and they did. But, but where, where are we looking at these? So I find actually the Christianity Today story or the Rabbi Zacharias story harder to read because that's my backyard. These are the spaces that I'm supposed to help protect along with many others. And so I want to push into that conversation as part of on the front foot, what we're doing in something like the Being Human Project is a positive articulation, but it's also in the resources we provide to say, we've got to do a lot better than we're currently doing on this because at the core of this will be the abuse of power. And we've got to name sin when we see it and say that's wrong and that's sinful behavior and we're, you know, that's what it is. But actually we have a theological understanding that is great and then we're ending up the reacting to the world, I think setting an agenda around feminism, we always feel, oh, because we haven't got on the front foot, we need to acknowledge that we've dropped the ball. And then because sometimes of our understanding around headship or leadership in churches, we get nervous to talk about it instead of saying, actually, fundamentally, this is really simple. Male and female are created equal in the image of God. God made the first earthling from that earthling. He put the earthling to sleep, took the bone out and made the thing that was remained with the male, but actually the first gender being was the female to be taken out of that. That'll get me into trouble in the comments from somebody. Um, but, but that is the reality of what's going on. The first being that we understand to be sexed is the female and what was left behind the remnants becomes the male out of that first earthling. The theology of this is really important as to what we understand is going to happen. And that gets us on the front foot again to start saying positively, what does it mean? What is it to be male and to be female? It's being shaped by our culture. It's actually a hard question. Christians think we need to do better at talking seriously. I, we, I believe they're different, but I, you know, we need to push into doing a better positive articulation of that if we're going to enter this space. Otherwise, we're always reacting, I feel, to another agenda and putting us on the back foot. Sorry. Not Did only that, off. Peter, your point... Uh, uh, oh, oh, sorry about that. The, the point that I was going to add in terms of the faith and, and not just the power dynamics, but I think within the church, we as Christians need to get better at knowing relationships between the sexes can be so much more than a sexual exchange. And I think that's the cultural narrative that is seeping into the church that needs to shift. And I'm always admired by Jesus's disciples, who he called to him, uh, the mix of people, the role of women within that space, and how they could coexist in deep friendship and a relationship, have healthy boundaries, have a deep love for one another that didn't skew off into inappropriate behaviour and inappropriate relationships that abuse position over one another. And I just think as someone who is a Christian, as someone who's in her mid-30s, there's such a role that I have to play to elevate and encourage other women uh, in my mix, but also to elevate and encourage men to see men not just as a gain for a relationship or a relationship in terms of father or grandfather, but that I have men in my life that are really strong platonic relationships that are to be invested in and they're the conversations that we need to be having more but also cultivating more within our churches in order to demonstrate that the two sexes could coexist and not be in conflict or competition with one another mm. i'm loving the wisdom that you guys are sharing peter you don't need to apologize for going into uh theology this is always part of what this podcast is we're all bringing our own our own personal views, stories to it. 
we'd love people to join in with that conversation and email us at cross.section at eauk.org. Um, I think I just want to round up this story on, on Child Q. Again, part of the point of this podcast is us as Christians who have been thinking through processing the news we want to help Christians do that. It's it's so hard not to segregate different parts of our lives in that way. And I think the thing I really want us to think about with Child Q is that it's not it's not just an anonymous person. It's not just a statistic. That is a little girl. It's a girl, an underage girl. And as Rachel Dunhollander reminds us in her talk, abuse stays with people forever that girl's life will have been changed by what happened to her you know 15 years old on her period that's already just about that but the trauma she has gone through that that is un, that won't change and the hope that we have as christians the redemption that we're offered in christ the grace that we're offered the god of the bible who who promises to take our crown of shame and give us a crown of beauty who came to bind up the brokenhearted. That is the good news, the hope that we have to offer a world um, that is in so much brokenness, where there is abuse and trauma and suffering. And while we want to be calling out in our communities, we want to be acting to prevent those things, we also want to be offering hope to the hopeless, offering redemption into broken stories. There is so much more that we could talk about this week, but I think we are going to have to stop there. As always, please follow us at EA UK News um, on Twitter, Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. We put out a question every week, which reminds me, I never gave the feedback on the question. This week we asked that question, women, do you feel safer walking home now that you did a year ago? Um, just 9% so they feel safer. 67% said they feel the same and 27% said they feel less safe. I think that's where we're going to end this week. Peter, Alicia, thank you so much for having this conversation. It's felt very therapeutic to talk out with you both this week. As always, thank you so much, Chris Ringland, for our post-production. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Cross-section. Conversations at the intersection of faith news and culture.